I guess my belief is firmly grounded in the IPCC process. It is the best science we have. Uh, I think there's a hysteria behind climate change. I would want people to not despair, not feel that their efforts don't matter because everything counts. The cat is out of the bag. If there's climate change happening, there's nothing you can do to, to reverse that. Even if it doesn't look like we're making a difference, the work itself and that sense of community and knowing that the energy I'm putting out there is in the right direction, it doesn't matter so much that I don't see a direct result. Climate change can be an overwhelming and divisive topic. Buddhist practice offers tools to help us turn toward the problem. Change in global or regional climate patterns is distinct from the constructs we create about that change. In this series, Sangha members offer reflections on how the threefold way of ethics, meditation, and wisdom can provide a dharmic lens for practicing with the sense of urgency climate change can evoke, with our metaphorical hair on fire. This segment focuses on ethics. I'm Arya Drishti, and I've been ordained for almost 10 years now and practicing for over 25 in the Tri Ratna tradition. My day job is a water resources engineer, primarily involved with restoring rivers and habitat and water quality. There was one person in our study group who was really, really upset about the the impact of the travel coming across the country to go on a retreat. I'm Nancy Arts. I live in Maine and practice with the uh, Portland, Maine Sangha, known as Nagaloka. I've been participating for about eight years, and I am a training for ordination mitra. I'm retired now, but my career was as a university professor, and I taught courses in environmental sustainability and ethics among other things. I was expressing concern about the amount of air travel that an international order like Tree Ratna uh, condoned. And it was a beautiful retreat. We're all doing good things. And she just kept saying it's not okay. Aria Drishti asked me if I might be interested in doing something. It was like, oh, I guess if I'm going to complain, I, I really should try to do something. But you're also, you know, connecting with your friends and deepening your practice and you're doing all these wonderful things. So it's okay. And I said, you know what, it isn't, it's still not okay. And in a way, it's okay to have it not be okay. I don't want to make it okay to travel to see our Buddhist friends, but I will choose to continue to do that because it's important but it really made me start thinking about, you know, even the carbon offset piece, which I know is very controversial. And I know that there's, I think because it's controversial, because I don't fully understand it, because of, you know, money going to groups that I don't know who are doing, I don't know what all over the world. And do I really trust that this is making a difference? And I don't do it. But I started looking into it after that conversation about what does it take to offset that impact, just that carbon impact. And it was something like, you know, $12 for my airfare for that retreat. And I thought for $12, it was kind of a minimum 
I can donate that $12. If we all donated $12, that would be a lot of money. It's not a lot of money for us individually, but it's a lot of money that could go into restoring those natural systems to be more resilient in the face of climate change, more resilient against wildfires, floods, sea level rise, all of these things that are causing suffering, regardless of, you know, whether you believe it's human caused or not, that we can do something to counteract it. And in the work that I do, I'm so aware that there's so little money going into restoring and protecting these ecosystems and so much money going into developing and kind of destroying them. And so to the extent that our actions cause destruction, you know, and carbon is one of those things that's measurable, that we can make that connection on an individual basis, that then we can take responsibility on an individual basis. You know, and at one point we thought being vegetarian was something that, you know, every Buddhist could do and we could we could do at least that to minimize harm. I think that carbon offsets is something that we can all do. And if we can afford to travel, we can afford to offset it. My name is Hridaya Sri, and I have been practicing with the San Francisco Sangha since 2005. In our movement, we fly around so much. And there was, in my ordination training, there was a sense that, well, I had to fly to the East Coast once a year I had to go to England, I have, you know, and now as an order member, we have to go to order conventions, you have to go here, you have to go there, and a lot of people are flying around. Now, it's great that we're all connected, and I think that I really benefit from that, and my family lives far away and all this, so it's not like I never fly in a plane, but I think in Sri Ratna, we can't just look at vegetarianism and say we're done, we've, we've done our job. I think we really have to look at other practices, and, I, and one of them, I think, where we have a big blind spot is around international travel and flying around all over the world all the time is, you know, we should be buying carbon offsets, but maybe taking a look at how we connect with one another. Hi, I'm Daya Mudra. I practice at the San Francisco Buddhist Center. And I work with the Dalit Buddhists in India. We have a school called Lokutra Leadership Academy in Kerala. Yeah, I feel like I've made a lot of good lifestyle choices, but I still fly, and so I wonder about that. I don't fly as much as I used to, but for example, going to India every year, should I stop doing that? Should I take a boat, you know? So there's something really important about us meeting face to face, and especially in terms of the social justice and spreading the Dharma. That's been a really important part of my personal practice. I would really like Tree Ratna to examine how it as a movement needs to think about its contribution to the climate crisis. I've heard people just say, well, we're an international order and we all want to be connected and therefore we all need to travel. Sangharachita, some of his writings were like, oh, people need to travel more. When I read the seven papers, the one thing I challenged a little bit was, do I really believe we should be an international order that stays totally connected? Maybe it makes more sense for regional groups once they reach a critical mass to stay more locally based. You know, transportation's an issue, and I would like Tree Ratna to face this honestly. My name is Ben Ovshinsky. I first connected with FWBO in 1980. 
I'm a, became a Mitra about seven, eight years ago in San Francisco, and I'm a GFR Mitra for the last four years. My previous uh, business experience was working for a company, my father's company, that was a pioneer in alternative energies. So that was my job, my business, and I was obviously quite sympathetic to it. The other uh, mode was just, you know, thoughtful sensibility, thinking, especially growing up in Detroit, uh, which I loved the cars, but being stuck on a freeway with all the, before unleaded gas and, and just realizing uh, all the shit that was being poured out of these one million tailpipes every minute, of every hour of every day of every city in the country. And then as I started teaching geography, started realizing about the, uh, you know, the atmosphere is an eggshell thick or less than that, maybe a hair thick on an eggshell. Uh, and, uh, you know, can only, it's, it's like any closed system, it can only hold so much carbon monoxide. And that, and that time I was more concerned with carbon monoxide. What we're doing is like running our vehicle in a closed garage. I hate to say it, and you can challenge me on it, I, I think there's very little to be done about any of these things. There's very little that can actually change things. And if you actually do manage to change things, it's like uh, the tide going, <laughs> you manage to push the tide out. Uh, a, a bit and that's a real victory and then you turn around and the next thing you know the tide is in five feet higher uh, but it's a different different algae on the tide or a different you know toxin or something I don't know it's climate change I have the difficulty with it's certainly what's obvious is weather change weather patterns are changing so you go back 1400 years and some terrible shit was happening weather-wise or climate-wise but to us we have this one data point this is a very bad drought. The sky is falling, the climate is changing. Are we in that kind of depth of climate change or are we in a shifting weather pattern? And to what extent is any of that caused by human intervention? Is there anything you could point to to say, in my life, this is this? No, I can't say that, uh, no. On an individual basis, it's hard to show that we're making a difference, both in terms of our impact, but also in terms of what we can do to kind of mitigate that or turn it around. I've been focused on climate issues for so long that I've gone through all of the grieving process um, because it can be pretty daunting. And at some point you have to learn to accept. Uh, you know, I remember when I first started bringing um, climate issues into the classroom, I had colleagues asking me, you know, why was I teaching at a business school and, you know, I shouldn't be so political in the classroom and, you know, it's like, okay, okay. And, you know, 10, 15 years later, they come up to me and say, well, you, you were right. And there's a part of me that um, I guess I don't often actually say it to them, but yeah, but it's in many ways, it's too late. Um, it's obviously never too late to avoid further damage, but we've already passed tipping points. So we know awful things are gonna happen. And I, and I think that's obviously the hardest part, knowing that because of societal inaction, we're going to see so many climate refugees and we're already seeing people dying now and it's just going to get worse. 
So I think that's the hardest part is knowing that there are some grim implications for the future. That, that doesn't mean that we can't do all we can to continue to work on mitigation so things don't get worse than they have to, and that we can't be very strategic about resilience and adaptation. And it doesn't mean that we can't recognize that you know the wealthy countries are the ones who contributed most to the climate problem and therefore we have a moral obligation to help those in developing economies and elsewhere that did not contribute you know so our our economy our style of life is has benefited from externalizing the cost of cheap fuel and uh, it's not fair to tell poor countries, oh, you can't use energy now. You know, we've already built up our economy by externalizing costs, but you can't. There's much that we can do, but it is, it's an area where people get burned out because it's, it's not pretty. I'm a GFR Mitra. I've been involved with Tree Ratna pretty steadily since 2001, although I dropped by for a short time way back in 95. And uh, yeah, so that's who I am. And my name's Ethan Davidson. At what point does refraining to prevent circumstances from taking lives bleed into violating that precept? If one doesn't at least attempt, I mean, you could talk about, you know, Nazi Germany and all that, uh, a lot of the complicity was just as harmful as the active, you know, people who were actually doing it. If we're not doing anything, and I'm not exactly sure what we should be doing, but I have ideas, but if we're not doing anything to try and we're just resignated, I mean, how is that not, in a way, as bad as actively taking lives? Take the precepts in particular, in terms of my practice, the word that came up was detachment. So let's just say unattached, trying to unattach myself from, and I hate to say, I know I come, this, I, you're getting my view, but I'm, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just, this is my view. <laughs> uh, trying to unattach myself, pretty consciously detach myself from the samsaric shit. I'm not saying you can, I'm just saying, you know, to some degree or another. You know, when I wake up and I drive my car, put my clothes on, I'm, I'm in it. <laughs> so the clothes are made by slave labor in China or whatever, I don't know. So it's detachment or unattachment to, and that ranks, that kind of connects up with the hysteria, you know, in quotes. I am not motivated or energized to change anything because I don't think it can be changed or if it can be changed, it changes like that again. Practice-wise, I'm conscious of detachment. I chose to support an organization called Promise the Pod that is really working to save the local pod of orcas that are on the verge of dying along the coast of the Puget Sound. And they're connecting projects in rivers that are restoring habitat for salmon that support these orcas. Um, these projects have been identified, they've been vetted, they've been supported, they just don't have the money. And so for people to just 
donate to that cause that's really local to this community and really important to this community. And if we can garner that support of the community to say, yes, the orca population is important to us. They're an icon of the Northwest. They're an apex species like humans are that depend on all these other ecosystems that are going to support us. I think there's a a love and an identification with that species that we don't necessarily get with some others. And we want to kind of use that to raise awareness and to help people feel like they are making a difference, because I think that's what the biggest challenge is. I think the first realization I have of why it matters that I do it, whether or not anybody else is paying attention or knows what I'm doing, is when I became a vegetarian. And I'm glad being a vegetarian, you know, it has this not harming animals, not non-harm, but as we're learning more and more about climate impact, that vegetarian diet is also um, is not a contributor like eating beef, for example, is such a big contributor to greenhouse gases. I felt good about not eating animals. Well, in Buddhism, I guess we would say it's like a blamelessness, a feeling of lightness, a feeling of not having to worry that your actions are contributing to harm in some way. And I mean, it's just kind of silly, but just feeling more connected to animals, actually, and having a sense of feeling more connected to life. Um, And this is all sort of going on in my own mind. It's not necessarily something you can measure or that really animals are responding to me in some way, like they can sense it. I don't think that that's the case, but I know, and I think that's the main thing about ethical practice, is that you as an individual know that what you're doing is not harming or is in some way benefiting or impacting whatever it is, whether it be animals or the planet or another human being. My name is Chandra Dasa. I am a member of the Trakna Buddhist Order, hence the slightly odd single name. Uh, Chandra Dasa means slave of the moon, which has been an interesting open question ever since it happened, since I was given that name. I'm the director of Buddhist Centre Online and of Free Buddhist Audio, which are two websites uh, providing free online resources on Buddhism and meditation. And I have been vegan, gosh, since 1991, with a wee gap in the middle. For me, veganism is about making sure that the sources of my nourishment um, in terms of food and the products that I avail myself of in my life are free of cruelty to other living beings. My relationship to it is to do with ethics and like, well, what is the, um, is there suffering involved? And also what are the mental states for me in engaging with the product of another living being? So I think vegan, veganism is, is something around all of that for me. It's an open set of questions and ways of thinking actively about life. I think my awareness of climate wasn't particularly pronounced in my early veganism and even my mid-phase veganism. Um, I think in the last 10 years or so, like many people have been aware of the stats around uh, veganism and the carbon footprint of people who do and don't consume animal products and do and don't live a kind of simpler life when it comes to diet. And there are gradations within that. So I've, I've been aware too that I still eat quite a bit of processed vegan food. Um, I'm a bit of a sucker for vegan meats and stuff and vegan cheeses, which I, I love dearly. 
And uh, I'm sure the energy that goes into producing those things is greater than, for example, some simple pressed tofu or something, or, you know, I do have a kind of quite glad connection with the fact that my own carbon footprint is a lot lower for being vegan. At the same time, it feels kind of accidental almost, like I, I'm not going to claim that it was a huge motivating force. And actually it was interesting becoming vegan or that being in my awareness in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And climate definitely wasn't an aspect of what people talked about back then. It was really just to do with the rightness or wrongness of eating meat. When I retired from my career about three years ago, I had been doing a lot more than just teaching environmental courses. I ran a statewide sustainable business network. I participated in all kinds of environmental groups. I wrote letters to the editor. All my friends were environmental activists going to protests, uh, you, you name it. It was sort of career and friends and hobby all rolled into one. And when I retired, I just wanted a total life change. So although I practice as close to zero waste as I can get, and I try to be energy efficient, and you know we have good energy features in our house. So while I was practicing on a personal level, I had really given up environmental activism. So we go through life where sometimes we're really doing outrageous acts. We're putting huge amounts of energy in our life and our soul into certain causes, but you can get burned out and it's okay to step back for, for a while and just engage in everyday actions, the little things, you know, so making sure that uh, you have as light a footprint on the earth as possible as an individual is, is okay for a while. That part of everyday actions is really embedded in my life. And partly it's because I'm married to someone who is so far out there on the bell curve um, that most people find it hard to believe. For example, we throw out one bag of trash a year and most people are sort of like mind boggled. You know, how do you only throw out one bag of trash a year? We've been doing it for so long, it doesn't feel like an effort. So I'm really wondering how people throw out more than that. The plastic seems to be the hardest thing to avoid. And that's what's mostly in our one bag of the year is food wrap. But, but I guess I, I, I feel that um, individual action has always been important to do, you know, because some people say, well, my individual actions aren't going to matter if other people don't do it. And it's it's just a matter of personal integrity. You know, if you do what you can, you feel better. Mm -hmm. And I've always believed that my vote and calling my senators, I, I probably call on environmental and climate issues more than any other issue. As, as an individual, that just, it feels good to be doing that. It's sort of the whole Buddhist ethics of if you engage in good behavior, good things will happen. But in terms of the really trying to make change at organizational levels, where you're really out there kind of fighting the fight that I fought throughout my career, that takes a lot of energy. I've worked with communities in Tamil Nadu and in Kerala. And I would say that because of the caste system, you know, traditionally people from the what were considered the lower caste had to live outside the village, outside the village walls. But now they basically live sort of in the worst 
area, the place that nobody wants to build. And those areas are actually the most vulnerable. So a couple years ago, there was a big flood in Tamanadu. And a lot of that was because of the amount of plastic that were sort of clogging the rivers and clogging the drains. And then last summer, there was a big flood in Kerala. And the people, the Dalit community, are really in the lowlands. And they were the worst affected. They were the first ones affected. And there was a lot of news about that flood, but there was no news until it hit the upper caste communities. So I was following it for weeks, and we were evacuating people. I mean, incredible stories of like a young woman who had to put her old mother in a big cooking pot and like <laughs> because there was so much water and then just sort of like push her down the river to safety and you know the marginalized communities are the most hit and then in terms of how aid is dispersed there's discrimination there as well so even the evacuation centers were segregated so there's a lot of overlap between racial justice and climate justice yeah my sister bought oceanfront property on an island in the gulf of mexico and uh, that property is essentially worthless now. Uh, she bought it maybe 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So she's lost a fabulous amount of money on that property. So it's not that rich people aren't affected, but mm-hmm. she still has a retirement. You know, maybe she doesn't have as much money as she had before, but it, it's not affecting her ability to have a high quality of life with dignity. You know, that's the, the part that's hard to face, that there are so many people who are already suffering. When you're talking to marginalized folks who are just getting by, it's very hard to have the bigger picture conversation about the climate, especially people who live in places where their basic needs aren't being met. There's not even garbage collection. So people just throw their garbage on the side of the road and there's cows and there's plastic. And so you just sort of see all the environmental degradation and it's very hard to collectively empower ourselves in a community that's not empowered, really, in terms of the society. Hello, everyone. My name is Gleisa. I am from Venezuela, and I am living in Merida City. I started to come along to the Buddhist Center when I was 16, and now I am 25. The Buddhist practice has been very helpful for me in this topic because I become more aware about my actions and even when I am living in a context where I don't have enough conditions to take action about the climate change, uh, the Buddhism helped me to understand how can I use the creativity in order to make a change in my actions and in the way that I am affecting the planet. Thanks for listening, and to everyone who shared their reflections on ethics and climate change. Music and sound effects via Splice, produced by Capson Pro Audio, Oliver, Blastwave FX, Producers on the Run, Alexander Tanous, The Love Experiment, and World Tech. I'm Mary Salome for The Buddhist Center Online.